0: The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the world of God.
1: Please be seated. Have you ever had somebody try to surprise you, whether it was a party for you that you weren't expecting, or a gift, or some news or announcement? Uh, It's a wonderful thing, although the process of getting to that joyous surprise sometimes could be difficult. You're trying to get somebody to go to a place that they haven't agreed to go to and don't really know why they're going there. And so sometimes they may not go easily. So on the, on the effort to surprise and bless them, they may get a little bit frustrated. You may have an argument along the way, um, but usually if you're the one planning the surprise, the assumption is once the surprise happens and they understand what it was, then the frustration will be relieved and it'll make sense and it will be worth doing. But for some reason, some of us Don't like surprises, just we'd rather not have all that joy as long as we don't have the confusion and grief along the way. Now part of that is because the world often surprises us in problematic ways. There are people who want to surprise you in a swindling kind of way. So nine times out of 10, when my phone rings, it is not somebody who's trying to call me. And. Uh, it would be surprising to know that the IRS wanted, realized a mistake in my 2022 tax return and that they just need to confirm my bank details. And, and the desire, the, the hopefulness of that could then leave you vulnerable, um, to thinking if this is true and I don't give them my number, I'll, I'll, my numbers, I'll lose out. Uh, and so we learn in this world to be discerning. Um, and I think some of us have been shaped to assume that most of the surprises in life will be the ones we don't want. And so we live with an attitude of the world where we're just waiting for the next thing to go wrong. That affects us, that shapes us. One of the things in John's gospel about the ministry of Jesus is John, as the narrator, keeps telling us that people are not understanding what's happening. So you have skeptics who have decided in advance they don't like what he's doing and they're not listening. But you have seekers, people who are interested in what he's saying, but they don't understand. But then you have disciples they're there to see everything. They, they're there for Jesus' explanations. But but John says, but, but they still don't get it. What Jesus is doing is more deep and more profound and more surprising. And so John says he writes the gospel because what Jesus did has the, the potential to give life, to renew all things, to reform how we see all of our perspectives. Um, but along the way, we need to trust him and some of us are not used to doing that. So in those moments of confusion as God is leading us along, we sometimes assume the worst, we start to argue, we start to um, uh, get concerned. And here in, the, in this passage that we're looking at, it's another moment where John tells us that even as this was happening, so this is sort of a great moment of these crowds coming out to welcome Jesus as he's coming, the recognition he should have had. But over the next few weeks, we'll see how the chapter ends. It's they still don't get it. So in verse 16, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. While they're happening, these things, while they're participating, they don't understand them. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. While it was happening, they certainly understood some things, but fundamentally they misunderstood And John says, but after Jesus was glorified, then they went back and they said, wait a second, he had said this and now we know what he means. This happened, now we understand why it happened. So so John tells his gospel to say, if you understand the outcome of the glorification of Christ, then not only the scriptures, the very ministry of Jesus that fulfills the scriptures will start to be able to give you life and from that life, you'll start to understand not only God, but yourself and life in the world with newer and deeper ways. We don't understand everything, but things are reframed. And so if you want to have life, if you want flourishing, John is saying you need to have some understanding of what it means that Jesus was glorified. And out of that understanding, you'll find that then you're equipped for these confusing moments in the world uh, to face them with the strength to be faithful in them rather than the cynicism to to fight and to give up. So today I wanna talk about three things in light of this. Um, Our understanding is not what it should be. So as I look at the passage and then ourselves, I first wanna talk about what they did not understand, or I'm sorry, what they understood at the time. Then secondly, what they need to understand, what at the moment they had not yet understood. And then third, what we need to understand. So I wanna begin with what they understood because they're not completely wrong. There's a lot of understanding of what's happening in this passage, but it's just not deep. And therefore, it winds up being misunderstanding in some ways. Um, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. This happened in John 11, a recent event um, in close proximity to Jerusalem. Verse nine says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So in John's gospel, the resurrection of Lazarus, the seventh sign, John says he writes about these signs. This is the seventh climactic sign before the sign of Jesus' own resurrection. It's already doing something. It's already, word is getting out that Lazarus has been raised. Um, and so uh, the crowd in verses Um, 17 and 18, the crowd who had been with him when he called, him being Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So there are two parts of the crowd, those who were with Jesus, who saw Jesus call a man who had been in the grave four days out of the tomb. And so they didn't need convincing. They were there. They saw it. And so something, Jesus did something profound. But now in Jerusalem, there's large people of hearing about it, hearing about it, not just because it's one person that's, that said they, they saw it, but a number of people, even those that would have been skeptical, said we were there. And so now there's an excitement. So what do they understand? They understand that Jesus has done something powerful. And, you know, if you're, if you're seeking life, um, one of the ways that we we feel like we're not thriving is when we feel weak, when we feel that we don't have power and therefore we're drawn to power. This was a sign of the unique power of God to give life. Only God in Genesis one is able to give life. What power was at work in Jesus who was able to call Lazarus out of the tomb? You know, if, you'll, if you're familiar with the political situation of the first century in this region, these were people that would be discouraged, that would feel helpless, that were angry, frustrated, still hoping in God. When Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave, one of the questions they would have had was, not simply, does this guy have power over death, but is this the one God promised would come, the ruler, the king? And so... um kingship is a position of power. It's, it's, a, it's, it's broad, but at least one aspect of it is political power. It's human power. It's the power of authority to organize and to to steward. And so if the one that God sent with his power is here, this must be the, the king over this kingdom that the scriptures talked about. And so, so they see Jesus as power, and they're right. Jesus is powerful. But as he comes to this to Jerusalem and they see that this must be the king, they're not yet ready to be citizens of the kingdom because they do what we typically do when we're desperate or perhaps greedy for power. We we extract it. One of the things about the power of God is it's embedded in his character. So in Genesis 1, God is able to order chaos and to call into being things that are not. But that God who is powerful is also very wise that God is very good, that God is very compassionate. There's a whole breadth of things that come so that God's power is to be used for the filling with life, for the flourishing of all things. That's the vision of the beginning of the Bible. Um, But there's something of that power we want, and we want it, even if we could take it from God and sort of use it in our own lives. And so the Bible records a story of the God who orders the world and the human beings who disorder it, who who seek to take that kind of power for ourselves and don't steward it wisely. And so it's like the wires in your walls. As long as they're covered by sheetrock or plaster or whatever your apartment is made of, uh, and they've been put in by an expert electrician, they are doing wonderful things. That electricity is going through is there for your benefit. Um, but if you wind up with a Uh, with a little mouse that chews through your wall, and then in trying to fix it, a wire gets exposed. That wire becomes dangerous. And so the power of God is used in its proper channels for such life-giving good. Uh, But once it gets taken out of that, once we take it thinking that maybe there's some personal benefit in an ego way, or maybe in our desperation when we feel like uh, we're so stuck we need power, uh, that we mishandle it, then it becomes actually instead of life giving life consuming, and so um, we see that that this uh, revelation of the power at work in Christ has two effects: one is people that felt like they needed it so the crowds come out um, and they they uh, it, and we can get uh, verses 10 and 11, within the crowds, you have those who are drawn to the power of Jesus. Maybe he's the one who will save us. And those who are struggling to keep the power that they have to try to make sure that they're not losing the influence. And, and we're not meant to be sympathetic to the religious leaders in the first century, but we will perpetuate their mistakes if we're not humble enough to recognize that in their minds, they meant well. You know, Rome is encroaching. And so if any movement that that threatens what we're doing they really believed they were preserving the truth of God, even if the symptoms showed that they had gotten far astray. Not simply are they rejecting Jesus, um, but they're they're on the cusp of a of a variety of injustices that showed that at this point their power is not functioning as it should. So in verses ten to eleven, it says the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So their concern in verse 19, the Pharisees speaking to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And that's what Jesus has said he came to do. He's the good shepherd. He comes so that all would come after him because he's leading anyone who will follow him somewhere. He will restore them to God. He will give them life. And yet there's this confusion. Wait a second. If he's leading people, if the world is going after him, it's a threat to the power that we have. And how do you know that there's something wrong in it? Not only do they want to kill Jesus, who announced good news to the poor, and he healed the sick, and he brought the dead out of the grave. They want to kill Lazarus because Lazarus is evidence. That's it. What did Lazarus do? Lazarus was not starting a movement. Lazarus was somebody that God had worked in his life. And you know that there's corruption when you say we want to get rid of him as well. That's something, something's wrong here, that they're going to take the power they have and take life. And so uh, what they saw that they needed, what everyone understood was there is a power at work in Jesus, but none of them yet understood the breath and the true nature of that power and so there was a bit of danger there and for us you know when you think about what is it you're seeking in life um, the kinds of situations we don't want to stay in is where we feel weak where we feel not good enough where we feel that we don't belong Um, and and we don't do well in situations of weakness and therefore we seek power and that's understandable but, but there's something wrong when that power gets removed from its right context. And so a place like New York is filled with the powerful. Many of us are drawn here because whatever it is that you feel like represents a form of power that is attractive, but also potentially beneficial. Um, we're in a university neighborhood. Is, is intelligence a form of power that is worth going after? Well, uh, we are in the midst of some of the great minds. Um, If you're in business, to think about powerful entrepreneurial leaders. If you're in the arts, to think about powerful creativity. Uh, If you enjoy food, or the beauty of people, or comfort, or whatever it is, New York is filled with these things. What we think the New Yorker's attitude is more and better perhaps than anywhere else. And so the very thing that draws us here winds up being something that gives us a hope that pushes us along thinking we can have that. uh, And then therefore, maybe we will have a life of some version we will feel alive, we'll feel excited. But what's interesting about New York City is on the one hand, there is genuine greatness and excellence here. And for that, we should rejoice. But the funny thing is, uh, the more people get closer uh, to that excellence, the more the symptoms of feeling that maybe you're not good enough, maybe you don't belong. Um, there's something here that that that. the more we're connected to the success, rather than it filling us with life, it winds up filling our lives with anxiety or resentment or jealousy. It winds up draining life from us. And we're foolish, we, we, we know this, but but what else is there? When you're desperate, when you feel weak, you need something that will give you strength and We seek strength as an end in itself. And therefore, Jesus had great strength and power. But he had more than that. And that's what they needed to understand. So I wanted to talk a a little bit about what they must have understood. Clearly, people saw there was a power at work in Jesus that either drew them to him or made them realize that he was threatening. But secondly, I want to talk about what they needed to understand. They needed to understand, yes, Jesus was powerful, but Jesus was more than just powerful, Um, so he could heal the sick and the dead, but he also um, had compassion, he had mercy. There was truthfulness. There was uh, the the whole system of character of God at work where this power was uh, being displayed. So he comes in fulfillment of the scripture. John wants us to know that the things that had been written about him and the things that he did, they started to understand that, and in this passage, there are two scriptures, one on the lips of the crowds, and one as John helps us to see what's happening. The first is Psalm 118, and the second is Zechariah 9. So uh, Psalm 118 is a psalm where it's really about somebody who feels weak but calls out to God for help and finds strength. That's the context of the psalm that they quote in verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. That's why we celebrate this event on Palm Sunday. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, save us, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And that's Psalm 118. There's a blessing in the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is coming. And so we're going to go out and seek the salvation of the Lord. They were right to do that. But John tells us that the Zechariah 9 passage indicates something about this great king who is coming. And if you read Zechariah 9, it's about a time that God promises one day he will establish peace. A peace that this earth doesn't otherwise know but will be his doing so in verses 14 and 15 it says Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt so these two stories are coming together the people who want a king and the king who comes to his people Um, But it's interesting that, that John, our narrator, makes sure that we have the imagery of Zechariah 9 and understand when Jesus came, usually kings, when they came to desperate people, when they came to deliver people, they came with the marks of the warrior. They would come on a big white horse. They would come with chariots. They would come with an army. Jesus entering Jerusalem on this last week of his life, but riding instead of on a conquering horse on a donkey's colt. It was a sign of humility. It was a sign that says, as he's coming, he's not racing quickly. And if you come after him, he's not gonna be able to get away quickly. He has the power and authority. He's the rightful one coming. He's coming humbly, fear not. And so there are two phrases actually, as John tells this story on the lips of the crown and on his that are actually not original to the verses there, but they're appropriate. They're theologically sound. In, in Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they see even the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118. It's fine. It's theologically right. The one who comes in the name of the Lord is the king. But, but it shows what they want, what they understood was happening, is we want a king. We want that kingdom. They desired it. It was good that they desired it. But they're taking Psalm 118 and their hopes and they're bringing them together. A word that's not in Zechariah 9 is fear not. So Jesus comes humble, and so again, it's just theologically obvious, if he's coming in this way, they shouldn't be afraid, even if their powerful king is coming. If you're used to reading the Bible, the phrase fear not typically is on the voice of those divine messengers, or when there's a divine appearance, when the angels come with an announcement from God, or when God himself visits his people. And what John is saying is this moment is so much more than God raising up from within your midst, somebody that he is going to empower. This is the very power of the life-giving creator who's coming to his people, as we have been hoping. Um, But the hope is confused. And so the story of the Bible is a story that from the beginning, that powerful and good creator has been rejected. And Jesus comes to his own, but his own do not receive him. And so his coming to Jerusalem, at first, is the fulfillment of the blessing of the one who comes in the name of the Lord, of this great king, but... By the end of this week, it will be his own crucifixion and reject him. He didn't come with a chariot and an army. He came with his power and authority, and he was hated and plotted against. Uh, So it's interesting as he's telling them, do not fear. Um, You know, Psalm 118 has a number of verses in it that's relevant to this passage, but one of them uh, also said, said sometimes on Palm Sunday, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone." So Jesus comes announcing a new kingdom. He's not taking this kingdom and and uh, making it his own. He's, he's announcing the kingdom of heaven of which all kingdoms of the earth are invited to come into. And yet his rejection will be the cornerstone for a, a new society. People who who understand power because they have this king but understand humility and mercy and grace. The The powerful one comes to us with a sign of humility rather than the conquering army, even knowing that his own people will plot against him. So as Jesus talks to Pontius Pilate in John 19 at the end of the gospel, Pilate says, do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Do you know my power? And Jesus in John 19:11 says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So be careful with your power, with your authority, yeah. Pilate had the the power to release or to condemn, but Jesus is saying, be careful because the one that you are about to condemn is the one who has entrusted you with this stewardship. And so that's the picture of this world. So in John 18, as Pilate is trying to get Jesus to talk, Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. And see, everyone here is fighting. They're wondering, who do they need to kill in order to gain power, to put off the powerful? And Jesus is saying, I've come not with a chariot, not with horses, not with an army. I've come, the Almighty God, with power, glory, and honor. And if you will see it, you will have life. Um, But if you don't see it, you are going to take mine. And it is in his laying down his life that we who have eyes to see it, See something of what God says. This is what will change you. Jesus, uh, John tells us it was when Jesus was glorified that we started to understand what happened. And and usually when we think of the crucifixion of Jesus, we think of his humiliation, especially the way it unfolded with the mockery, the scorn, the pain. Um, and we think of his resurrection as the vindication, uh, which is true. But John, who calls himself in the gospel, the beloved disciple. John, who in 1 John says, God is love, is the one who says when Jesus was crucified, that's when we started to see the glory of God. The life-giving nature of him giving himself for us, then for him to take up his life, to invite us into a new kingdom. The very ones who, because they misunderstood, were rejecting the life-giving power of God, using the very corrupted power we have to take for ourselves. John says, if you see the glory of God in that, that we rejected him from the beginning. So when Israel demanded a king, read First Samuel. Samuel, the prophet, understands. You're, you're urging for a king now. He says, this is the rejection of God. And God says, let them do it. I'll raise up a king. God allows for a final rejection to demonstrate That his life-giving power will come to all who would see the glory that power is not meant to be abstracted from mercy from humility from kindness and that glory draws us in it helps us to put down our weapons and say instead of fighting the way the world fights instead of seizing and grasping for power we are meant to be those who who enter into a different kind of power and therefore um, one of the things that that we see that glory does is it changes our hearts. It it takes away the the feeling of weakness because in the greatness of New York City, the person who's far wealthier than you and far more talented and has far more fans and whatever it is that makes you feel like, I don't belong, I'm not good enough. There's a kind of greatness that makes us feel small. And Jesus comes with a kind of grayness that he comes in humility and says, there is more glory than you can imagine, but if you draw near to me, you won't feel like you don't belong or like less of yourself, you'll actually find out who you actually are. And that life in you will start to give you the strength and power, not only to prepare you for the realization of this kingdom, but to go back into this troubled and corrupted world with a different kind of power, a power that's embedded with the kind of character of humility and mercy and kindness and grace. And therefore, what we need uh, as a church is to be a people who don't fail to look towards God seeking to find something of his glory. You know, sometimes people feel like the, the important thing are the actions of the church. And so should we waste our time, an hour and a half, two, three hours every Sunday, coming together to sing and to explain the Bible and to, to remember the greatness of God? Why don't we go out into the world and do something? You should not choose between either or. But two or three hours in the first day of the week to remind you of true glory, of true power, of true humility, of true grace is exactly what you need so that whatever you are doing in the world for the rest of the week is done in the right context, anchored in this new kingdom that Jesus is forming. The stone that was rejected became the cornerstone. So we gather to remember together the glory of God and the weak find themselves strengthened. Uh, The worship of God will give you a kind of strength that's different than the worship of money or fame or beauty. And then you'll find you can go back to the city and rejoice in the wisdom of the intelligent at Columbia. You could rejoice at the skill of those who are performing in Lincoln Center. You could rejoice at the beauty of those who are modeling. Uh, You could rejoice at the people who devote themselves to cleaning our parks because your understanding of power is, is embedded in a vision of who God is, and we need to understand that. There was an article in the New York Times recently reflecting on a couple of books, including one called Awe, written by a psychologist who, who as far as I know, does not have a religious or Christian um, uh, intention in his writings, but, but talking about how awe is is an essential component for human beings. So this is from the the New York Times, but commenting on this book by a guy named Dr. Keltner. The writer says, many of us have a critical voice in our head telling us we're not smart, beautiful, or rich enough. Awe seems to quiet this negative self-talk, Dr. Keltner said, by deactivating the default mode network, the part of the cortex involved in how we perceive ourselves. So maybe from the, the goal of a psychologist, he just wants you to know that rather than getting stuck in your negative thoughts, to find something big and beautiful, nature or whatever it is. But as Christians, we can say he's actually tapping into a, a theme that human beings are called to worship. From the very beginning, we were to be in awe of God's beauty and greatness and power. And that's meant to restore our souls. When we take his power away from him, we find that we don't become more powerful. We become weak and self-destructive. And so to be a community that worships is exactly what you need, not only to have strength, but to steward that strength responsibly. So come to church, uh, read your Bible during the week. And then the third thing I want to talk about is, is the, the understanding we take with us. And so uh, here's the third thing. What do we need to understand? Well, we need to understand this power, this humility, this grace. We need to understand the fullness of God that we're invited into, how it strengthens the weak. But we need to understand that this is something that is so easy to forget or to lose sight of. And so what we need to do is we need to remember that's an important discipline. So uh, going back to verse 16 that I opened up with, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Even his disciples didn't understand. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so did you ever have uh, a situation where something difficult comes up and then it changes how you remember all the events around it? All of a sudden, something that was sort of fine, all of a sudden you have a new insight and now your grumbling mind remembers everything with a lens of negativity. You all get stuck in that trap. What we're told is to remember the gospel Remember God in his power and glory who comes to give you life. He did it with humility. He did it sacrificially. Remember in your weakness that that will be a source of strength. Ground yourself in that. And then as you go into the world with a reminder that that is your foundation, then make sense of the confusing things. Make sense of your weakness and your failure. Uh, Work through the fact that you don't feel able to deliver on the thing for which there is a deadline. Remember the grace of God um, because your anxiety is not helping you prepare. Your anxiety is taking the strength you need to do the work. And so remember the power, the glory, the grace, the humility of God that even if you're weak, you're okay. So if you fail, um, you're okay in the kingdom of God even if you're not okay at your company. And that will actually strengthen you in your company or with your friends or whatever it is to actually be the kind of people that draw on a deep well of resources so we could keep going through failure, through discouragement, through trying to solve problems in this world that the world seems to be resisting every time that there's a solution, we could keep going. And that's what we see actually um, in Lazarus himself, that, that God did something good and yet that good was resisted. And yet the good was so great that even those resisting, those who planned on killing Jesus and those who planned on killing Lazarus, couldn't kill the story. So here we are in the 21st century Remembering together that this happened, the scriptures were fulfilled. And so Lazarus is an interesting figure in that, on the one hand, God worked so powerfully in him, but he doesn't become a celebrity in this passage. God worked in him, and therefore people wanted to go after Jesus. And yet, because God worked in him, some people wanted to kill him. And Jesus spends the whole of the Gospel of John saying, that's the paradox if you follow me, because that's what they did to me. So on the one hand, understand this: some people will resent you even while you're trying to do good, but know the power of the coming of the kingdom, that even if they come after you, uh, God's life-giving power will move forward. And, and when we're thinking about ourselves and our strength and what we can do and our obligations, we're overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. When it's God's power working in us, then we're able to have the confidence that God will use it to bear witness to himself and the hope for the Christian is not that everyone will think that I am great, but because of the work of God in me, that they might start to think that God is great. And that's the restorative thing, it's not that we disappear as individuals, it's that who we are as individuals comes to life as we realize we're not alone in the universe to be the only powerful one figuring it out, but we're part of this kingdom where your life is a witness to the life giving power of God even if some are resisting it. Um, On Friday, the five Redeemer churches gathered for a worship night. They'd been planning this for months, and it's an interesting thing. When Tim Keller, the founding pastor, retired six or seven years ago, uh, you know, a church that big and that influential, how do they figure out how to get through it? And people had different opinions. Some churches felt, some of the particular Redeemer churches felt they should be independent. Some felt that they should be collaborative. So the interesting thing is, the first time in six or seven years, the first time ever on Friday night, Redeemer decided, we're going to gather and we're going to worship the Lord. And they didn't know that that morning Tim Keller would die. So what do you do when the news breaks? Well, it's a good thing we've rented that space, it's a good thing we've called the church to gather let's pivot and let's come together to grieve and to remember tim keller but before they gathered on friday night they said if tim was here he would tell us not to gather to remember him he would tell us to gather and worship the lord and so yes at redeemer how could you not gather with sorrow how could you not say let's remember our great founder but then they said but let's remember the grace of jesus christ and let's worship the lord and Why is it that Tim Keller has the legacy that he has? He was gifted. He had great ability. He was wise, he was faithful, he was hardworking. The Spirit of God was at work in him. So the more we said, this guy's amazing, the more we said, Jesus Christ is so good. And that is how you know that God's glory and power and mercy and kindness is at work in the world. And so what is the hope for ourselves? Work hard, gain skills, Be smart. Put yourself out there. Try to do great things, but do so with the power and the humility grounded in the gospel of Christ. And if you fail, you'll be fine. And if you succeed, you'll actually be fine as well. Uh, Because if your life is a witness to the power and the glory of Christ, some people will come after you problematically, but some people will go after God, which means that whatever skill and wisdom we have, if we use it, in fellowship with Christ, then God would not only work in our lives, but through our lives, God will work to give life to the nations. That's the vision, that's the power. Jesus Christ raised Lazarus, he will raise up everyone who hopes in him. So with that hope, go bravely back into the world, but humbly. You don't have to convince everyone that you're great, you need to be a witness to the power of God in you, and God will do something great. Let's see what he does this week, let me pray. Our Father, how much we need to understand, forgive us that with our partial understandings, we still get so much wrong. Thank you for your enduring patience that even as we are insulting you, even as we're dishonoring you, even as we're meddling with the good things you're doing, uh, somehow you're showing us kindness. You're still inviting us back. You're still giving us life. So forgive us all, renew us all. May all of us who are here today leave strengthened by that life that comes in the power of the Spirit, may we individually, may we as a church, may we as, as a church in this world, be a faithful witness to the life-giving power that came to us in Jesus Christ. And as he is glorified, may we rejoice and be strengthened for life in this world, but also may the world be strengthened because something of your glory is more visible and tangible because you're at work through your people in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.